This is a messianic study of the book of Romans. It's given in a midrashic setting, which is audience participation. It was given during the months of June through August 2008. The discussion leader is John Behrens. He's pastor of Restoration Messianic Fellowship. You can reach our website at www.crimsonthread.com. There you can find this study in its entirety as well as other resources for your messianic study of the scriptures. This discussion has been edited and a number of the comments have been either truncated or removed for clarity and continuity. Chapter 9. I am speaking the truth in Messiah. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Messiah for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. All right, here's where, again, much of the Sunday church sort of dumps Jews into the unsaved pot. He's going to quote a lot of prophecy, and what he's going to say is what God says. And he's going to say what Yeshua says. That yeah, there are lots and lots of people who are physical descendants of Abraham, but they don't have faith. Okay? And because they don't have faith, they are lost. One of the things that he does not say is because they don't believe in Yeshua, they are lost. And and as we go through, I'll, I'll, I'll point that out. Because it's a critical distinction. Because I'm suggesting to you that one of the, that the, the problem here in, that he's addressing in Romans is the problem between new Christians who have come out of paganism, received the Holy Spirit, been touched by God, know absolutely without a doubt in their minds that they have had an encounter with the living God. And they have these Jews who are Orthodox who don't understand or don't believe that Yeshua is the Messiah. And so they are looking down on those Jews with contempt. You know, here I am. I got the Holy Spirit. And who are you? And oh, by the way, contempt for Jews is something they would have brought with them from paganism. In other words, they're spring loaded to do that. Because you remember one of the things that God says to his nation is, okay guys, you're my chosen people. You are going to glorify my name. What we would like to have happen is that you glorify my name because I bless you. And everybody around can see the shining nation of Israel that is blessed of God and that is exactly what I want and that's what you want. However, you are my chosen people. And if you are not going to walk in my ways, you are going to glorify me in exile. Because everybody is going to see that you are not going to evaporate, you're going to maintain your coherence, you're going to be identifiable for all the time, and you are going to be an object of contempt, ridicule, and hatred because you are my children. So you're going to glorify me. Best forever all concerned if you do it in obedience, but it's going to happen anyway. So what we have with the Jews is they are in exile. And all of these curses that are pronounced clear back in Deuteronomy are running. In other words, they are persecuted. They're a minority. And they have been ever since the exile. So for 
pagan Gentiles to have contempt for Jews goes with the territory. Am I saying all that so it makes sense? And so they come into the church, the synagogue, and they've got the Holy Spirit. And they say, Ooh, I'm operating in God. And how come you don't believe in Jesus? How come you don't? On and on and on. And so you have this split. And Paul's going to address that later on as we get farther on in the letter. And he's going to slap them down. Not the Jews, the Christians. In terms of the, of the, of the marriage laws and the remarriage laws. Mm-hmm. I understand. That's not what he's talking about here, though. And what he's talking about is... Go back to Moses for a minute. We've just finished reading Korah's Rebellion a couple weeks ago. What does God, or what does Moses do every time the children of Israel rise up in rebellion? Falls on his face and pleads for them for God, before God. Paul is speaking in that same vein. And he is saying, we are in exile because we deserve to be. I mean, not saying that, in this, but the attitude is we're in exile because we deserve to be in exile. And a lot of us don't have any faith. So what I would pray for is that all Israel would be regathered under God. Okay, just like Moses said, God, blot me out of your book if you're not going to take me, you're not going to come with us, remember? God, kill me, not them. So Paul is speaking in that same spirit. Verse 4. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Messiah, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Now, one of the things that you should get loud and clear, ding, 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 There are no covenants with Gentiles. All of the covenants are with Israel. So if you want to partake of any of the covenants that are in the Bible after Noah, you have got to become part of Israel. Okay? John, would you you also clarify that to say Abraham, or would you say the promises of Israel that came through Abraham, and you know, when we read the Torah, you see what the promise of Abraham is, and you see that it is explicitly passed on to Isaac and explicitly passed on to Jacob. Okay, so all of those subsume, but, but some of them say that Abraham will be a blessing to the nations. Who's the blessing? Abraham, not the nations. Verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Okay, so this is is where we're going. He's saying that there are lots and lots of physical descendants of Israel who are not of Israel. And not all are children of Abraham, verse 7, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named, which is what Brian just said. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise says. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's promise of election might continue. But because, not because of works, but because of his call she was told. The older shall serve the younger. 
As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. And again, the Calvinists will spend days camped out here. And my take on it is this is foreknowledge. God is outside of time, so he knows what's going to happen. Also, a couple of things are going on. Uh, he's saving the place of the firstborn for his own son. And so one of the things that you find coming up through the lineage of Christ is there are, there are I won't say there are no firstborn sons, but there are some, you know, up in the, toward the end. But all of the big players that get a lot of ink in the Torah are not firstborn uh, because he's saving that position for his own son. But what Paul is saying is there is a distinction even among those who are born of Abraham or born of Israel. Some of them are going to be saved and some of them are not going to be saved. And what he wishes is that they all could be saved, which is very mosaic. 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice in God on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and hardens whomever he wills. All right, you've got to go back to Genesis, or, yeah, Genesis, Exodus, try Exodus. Got to go back to Exodus. And if you read the story of Pharaoh carefully, what you discover is God starts by talking to Moses. And he says to Moses, I'm going to send you in there, but it ain't going to work. Right? You're going to go in there with these signs and wonders and eloquent arguments, and it ain't going to work. And then he goes to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Through the first... Somebody give me a number. I think it's three. I think it's three and then seven. Yeah, I think it's, it's the first several plagues, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. In other words, Moses goes to him and says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no way, Jose. Ain't going to go. Right? So we turn the water into blood. Let my people go. Not a chance. Flies or... Uh, Frogs, thank you. And so forth. And so as these things ex escalate, for the first several of them, Pharaoh is standing up in his understanding that I'm a god too. And I don't have to listen to this local god of the Hebrews. You know, who's your god? Why is your god any different from the god that, you know, of the tribe up the Nile? Okay, I'm a god. And so Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Okay. In other words, he makes the decision initially to, to start the round. As it goes on, God then hardens Pharaoh's heart. Okay? And God hardening Pharaoh's heart in subsequent plagues is to give Pharaoh the courage of his own convictions. So at some point in the, in the sequence, Pharaoh says... No more, no more, I quit, I give up. And God says, no, no, I'm not through. You may be through, I'm not through. And we're going to carry this thing to the end. 
it's important to read, as you read Exodus, to recognize who hardens Pharaoh's heart at what point in the process. Okay? And so Pharaoh, and, and you know, the example I always use is, it's, it's sort of like dancing with a bear. You can decide whether or not you're going to get into the cage. But once you get into the cage, the bear decides when the dance is over. Okay? So Pharaoh made his decision to go into the cage. And, and once he made that decision, the dance ain't going to be over until God's done. You have to read this in that context. And, and the rabbis know this, by the way. I, you know, I'm not, this is something that is, again, Torah 101, and any rabbi worth his salt would know. It's 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? Again, Calvinists love this. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even as whom he has called, not from the Jews, but also, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. And indeed, it says in Hosea, those who were not my people will be called my people, and her who was not beloved will be called beloved. And in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. This is again speaking of Israel. Okay, in Hosea. What he's saying is, I have called them not my people, lo me. But at some point, I'm going to regather them, and then they are going to be sons of the living God. 27. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Concerning Israel. Through the number of the sons, though the number of the sons of Israel be as sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So again, he's talking about those who have fallen away. The other thing that Isaiah says, remember his commission? What is Isaiah's commission at the beginning of Isaiah? Go to these people and speak so they will not understand. Close their eyes, shut their ears, lest they hear and turn and I have to save them. Right? You remember that? That's Isaiah's commission. So Isaiah is making all these prophecies and he's making them in a way that Israel will not understand them and I will guarantee you a lot of us don't understand them still, me included. Okay? Just like Yeshua spoke in parables. And so at some point, what happens with God is he says, all right, I'm going to tell you the truth, but I'm going to tell it to you in a way you will not understand so that you cannot repent and I have to heal you. Because what's happened is your sins have reached the point where we need to send you out of the pool. That is determined and decreed and it's now going to happen. So all of this stuff I'm saying, and it's in Yeshua, it's, it's, I think it's after Matthew chapter 13, where they basically ascribe the works of the Holy Spirit to Satan. At that point, Yeshua starts speaking in parables. And his 
disciple says, what? What are you talking about, boss? And he says, it's given to you to understand, but not to them. And it goes right back to Isaiah. I mean, he didn't quote Isaiah there, but it goes right back to the concept in Isaiah. When it's finally reached right up to here, and God says, no more, you're going into exile. Now, you may not go into exile in the next 20 minutes, but I'm going to make sure that you can no longer repent so that I have to heal you. And that goes back through all of this we've just been talking about. Heal me hardened, who has mercy on you, will have mercy and so forth. The, the whole point of this exercise, and what I said with Pharaoh, is you will never get into that situation unless you step away from God. Once you decide to step away from God, as Israel did, then you are dependent on the mercy of God as to whether he lets you back. And he doesn't have to do that if he wants to make a point. Did I say it so it made sense to you? And that's what's happened to Israel. They stepped so far away from God that God says, okay, I told you, you're going to glorify me. Well, you're not doing it in blessing because I can't stand the way you're behaving. So we're going to do it in exile. And, oh, by the way, don't come crying to me because I ain't going to listen to you. You're going to your room. And he then sends them into exile. And so what the point is, is he's the one who decides how much forbearance and how much mercy he is going to display, not Israel. And, and, and what I'm suggesting to you is you take all of this stuff that the Calvinists hang their hats on and read it through that lens. Okay? Yeah? Do the rabbis read it that way because you've got that lack of mercy, per se, of the Holocaust? The events of the Holocaust, as well as the events of all the programs and stuff, are all not not in detail, but they're all foretold in Deuteronomy. He says, you're going to go into exile, and all this stuff is going to happen to you. Okay? So all of the stuff that happened is, while the details are a surprise, the fact that stuff like that happens to them is not. Okay? Um, where am I here? Yes. Yeah, because as I say, as long as you are walking with God, he has infinite mercy. But if you turn your back to him, then you are in a position where it's up to him. And if he's got a point to make, and you can make that point for him in exile or whatever, he may use you as a bad example. And if he decides to do that, no amount, no amount of bawling and squalling is going to get you out of it. And that's what's happened to Israel. Let's see if we can finish the chapter. Verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that, a, that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. All right, so what he's saying is Gentiles weren't looking for righteousness. They attained it, parentheses, the righteousness that is by faith, not by behavior. Whereas Israel was pursuing righteousness through obedience to the law, but they did not attain it. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. 
but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So what, he's not, what he is not saying here is that there is a problem with following the law. You follow the law in faith. You follow the law in faith. And, 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 and if you try and follow the law without mixing faith in, then the law becomes a real problem to you. But, but again, the words are really important here. Let me, let me read it again, then we'll quit. Israel, 31. Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, the Torah, the purpose of the law is it leads to righteousness, right? But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the, that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. In other words, there is no problem with what they pursued. The problem was how they pursued it. Did I say that so it made sense to everybody? Because it's really important. Because a lot of the Sunday church will grab on this and say, stay away from that law stuff. That's not what Paul is saying. Okay? What Paul is saying here is the problem with Israel was lack of faith.